from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 21st. Today, President Trump once again backtracks on gun reform, the fallout from failed peace talks in Afghanistan, and the new stars of the Berlin Zoo. In the days after back-to-back mass shootings in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio, President Trump seemed to be open to supporting background checks for people who want to buy guns. We need intelligent background checks, okay? This isn't a question of NRA... Republican or Democrat, there's been no president that feels more strongly about the Second Amendment than I do. However, we need meaningful background checks so that sick people don't get guns. Well, you know, the president, of course, reacting to the public outcry of these horrific incidents, you know, was fairly quick to get on social media and talk about the need for background checks. David Nakamura is a White House reporter for The Post. The president tends to be tactical and often says things to sort of get him through the immediate situation. And the immediate situation after these mass shootings is huge public outcry and sort of a a national, you know, mourning period and and a reaction that this can't keep happening. And what's the president going to do about it? He and Josh Dossie reported a story this week about Trump's backtracking on gun reform. Exactly. The president came out and said there was robust support for expanded background checks. He said that Mitch McConnell was on board, that he would get Republicans on board, and that he would also get the National Rifle Association on board. He was bullish about the prospects, and he gave a sense to the public and to lawmakers on the Hill that he would be willing to champion an aggressive legislative push, even though others were quite skeptical then because he had made such comments before after the Parkland shooting, after other shootings, and not followed through. And then, like some people expected, you saw him start to backtrack pretty quickly on what he'd initially indicated. There was a moment Thursday night at the president's rally in New Hampshire where he said, There is a mental illness problem that has to be dealt with. It's not the gun that pulls the trigger. It's the person holding the gun. And he got the most roaring applause of the evening. And the president later mentioned to uh, advisors at Bedminster, his golf course in New Jersey, where he's been staying on vacation, that his base seemed very... uh, skeptical of gun control legislation. He was flooded last week with calls from NRA President Wayne LaPierre, from conservative lawmakers like Mark Meadows, from his own advisors who were skeptical of of big background check legislation or substantive background legislation, I might say. And then yesterday he called uh, NRA President Wayne LaPierre and seemed to back away from expanded background checks. Though today, the president leaving the White House on the South Lawn said there still may be background checks. Oh, I have an appetite for background checks. We're going to be doing background checks. We're working with Democrats. We're working with Republicans. Uh, We already have very strong background checks, but we're going to be filling in some of the loopholes, as we call them, at the border. And speaking about at the border, it would be really nice if the Democrats would indeed fix the loopholes. So there are a lot of messages to a lot of people, but... My reporting in the White House would indicate that he is certainly dimmed on background checks and the prospects of them happening are less than they were from the immediate days after the shootings in El Paso uh, and Ohio. 
And as you mentioned, this is a thing that President Trump has done before, especially when it comes to issues of gun control that are being discussed right after a mass shooting, that he comes out really quickly to say, you know, I see the problem here. I would be game to do something about this. And then he starts the the slow rolling of, of, of taking back what he initially said. Well, the president's legitimately torn between several impulses, right? He's not necessarily a gunman, and he has not been someone who's owned guns his whole life, has been out a hunter. He genuinely feels uh, some desire after these shootings, if he took to current and former administration officials, to do something, to be the first Republican president to pass meaningful uh, gun legislation in, in years. He he sees the lane, the ability to make change. And he's also torn by this president's main instinct— is to keep his supporters with him at all costs and to keep uh, the 95% of the Republican Party or so that that likes him, 90%, I don't think it's quite 95, 90%, you know, with him no matter what. And that's kind of his key to potentially winning the Electoral College again, even if he, even if he lost a popular vote. So the president is torn between those two impulses. And what he heard repeatedly and in some ways was a savvy and shrewd argument from, from folks like Wayne LaPierre and conservative lawmakers is your base won't like this. You will get guff. The people who are pushing you to do this are never going to be with you regardless. They will always want more from you. They will not be satisfied with this. These were the arguments he was hearing over and over and over again, and they were effective arguments. What have you heard about what lawmakers on the Hill have thought about this, and particularly Democrats who I think keep seeing these small windows where they're thinking maybe it's worth trying to negotiate with the president, and then very quickly that sort of get the, the rug gets pulled out from underneath them? So the shootings happen on Saturday and Sunday. That Monday morning at 6.30 a.m., the president has a phone call with Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia. In the call, the president's expressing openness to background checks, saying, I will lead on background checks. Joe Manchin saying to him, Mr. President, the Republicans aren't going to do it unless you force their hand. You have to be the one to, to make this happen. And he goes, OK, OK. So Joe Manchin then starts calling Republican lawmakers, saying, I think the president could be on board. Let's see if we can make a deal. The president the next weekend talks to Chris Murphy, Democrat senator from, from Connecticut, is again bullish, saying, I want, to, I want to make a deal. I want to make history. I want to pass gun control legislation with you. There's some intrinsic skepticism from Murphy and from Manchin because they, they've seen what the president's done in the past. But each time, I think the president speaks uh, initially so strongly and so determined or seems so determined, at least in his words, that they feel compelled to work with him because – you know, they do want to get something done and they do know uh, Republicans and Democrats know alike on the Hill that if the president's not on board, the Republicans are not going to be on board with getting something done. So they play this two-step game with him where they both are working with him. They're hoping the rug doesn't get pulled out from under them. They're talking to one House officials. They're talking to lawmakers. They're really pushing for change. And all the while, they're concerned that he may back away like he seems to have done again. Uh, so, and, and so what do you think the takeaway of that is? The president often is inclined to listen to the last person he's talked to. And if you really wanted to get gun control done, substantive background check legislation that would take political capital, you'd have to come back in September, which is a month after the shooting, where the the political mood of the moment is probably on a budget of that deal, or maybe it's on Afghanistan troops, or maybe it's on buying Greenland, or maybe it's on any any different topic, right? And you would have to come back and you would have to focus back on gun control. You would have to spend two or three months, maybe even longer, 
calling lawmakers every day, withstanding pressure from the NRA, possibly withstanding pressure from your own aides, possibly withstanding pressure from Republican senators. You would have to be fortified and determined that this is going to happen no matter what. When has the president done that? I, I, I don't say that to be a cynic or a skeptic. When has he shown the desire and the willingness to push something for months and months and months that's controversial, that's not necessarily in line with what his supporters want? Even in the health care bill, he lost interest early on time and time again. In the tax bill, he would lose interest. And that eventually got across the finish line because there were Republicans who were united in the House and the Senate and they wanted it no matter what. But when has he shown the desire, the willingness, the determination, the fortitude to do that? Josh Dossie and David Nakamura are White House reporters for The Post. Well, we're looking at Afghanistan. We're talking to Afghanistan, both the government and also talking to the Taliban, having very good discussions. We'll see what happens. We've really got it. After almost a year of peace negotiations, the U.S. and the Taliban have failed to reach an official deal. But since these peace talks began, attacks by the Taliban have escalated. Well, many people believe that it's because of the talks that the Taliban have been trying to show that they have a lot of strengths that they can attack where and whenever they want, and that this is essentially a form of leverage at the peace table. That's Pam Constable. I'm the Washington Post bureau chief for Kabul and Islamabad. Pam says that Afghans question how successful these peace negotiations could be and how they would even be implemented especially because the Afghan government isn't involved in the talks at all. It's very hard for people here to accept and understand the idea of negotiating in a hotel over tea with people who are sending, you know, fighters to kill civilians as well as security forces back home. And what is the current status of the U.S. peace talks with the Taliban? The current status of the peace talks is not entirely certain. They've been talking off and on since September. We're pretty certain that they've agreed on two points, one of which is a timetable for the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan, although we don't know what exactly the timetable would be. And the other thing they've agreed to is a guarantee or a promise that they, the Taliban, would not allow other groups such as al-Qaeda or ISIS to operate from their areas. The two points that we think they have not agreed on yet are a permanent ceasefire and also what form or construct there would be for uh, negotiations among Afghans themselves. Well, so the fact that at this current point, they haven't reached a final agreement and that there are still these couple of sticking points, what does that mean for Afghanistan? What does that mean for what it's like there and, and for the future of people there? Yeah, it means that there's a lot of uncertainty. Many of Afghans are very worried that the American government wants 
to get out of the country and is pressing for an agreement much too fast. The other thing that's happening here is that presidential elections have been scheduled for the end of September in the middle of this whole you know, turmoil and concern over the peace talks. And that is seen as a parallel process that, depending who you talk to, could help or hurt the peace talks. So to have these two things going in parallel at once, negotiations that haven't been concluded yet and elections that have already been postponed several times and are uncertain, uh, is making people, you know, doubly, doubly worried here. My name is John Gerberg. I'm a journalist at The Washington Post. Afghanistan is facing no shortage of threats. There are daily bombings. There is no safe institution that is insulated from from the violence in one way or another. More and more, the Taliban is targeting schools. According to the UN, attacks on schools tripled last year. And John says that that's because these schools double as polling places. A measure of both what's at stake for the future of the country and how that future of the country is dealing with these threats are schools. They are this kind of nexus of education and politics and the conflict. We went to the south into the province of Kandahar. We went to Spin Baldak, which is right by the Pakistani border. And these are schools that have seen a whole array of violence, right? In some ways, this is just the reality of going to school in a war-torn country that's been at war longer than any of its students have been alive, right? We went to one school called the Ali Nika School. It's an all-boys school. And just to give you a sense of the kind of violence that they face, first of all, they were attacked on election night last year in the parliamentary elections. They were hit by a, a Taliban explosion. The headmaster who we talked to, Noor Mohammed, was there. He said it was so strong, he felt like he was thrown off a roof. First, uh, we were having dinner, then we had a big boom, big blast. And it was so strong that we felt that the, that the entire building may collapse on us. But though I was dizzy, but I, I thought I was worried that if, what if someone was wounded or, or killed. And luckily no one was hurt in that attack. However, what he considers the most threatening of all is the police station that's right next door. Because it itself, rather than kind of providing security, is a target for insurgent attacks. Uh, this is a problem. This is a problem that the, the outpost is close to us. We don't feel safe today. We we feel safe as far as we if we are far away from the uh, uh, our security forces outposts. So they've had a number of attacks on the police station. Most recently, one just a month ago. The windows there are still shattered, and the headmaster himself. Now they let out school twice a day and he stands there at the gate and makes sure his students all walk one way, the safe way, quote unquote, um, towards all the shops rather than take a left and walk past the dangerous police station. So it's sort of like a crossing guard for these students in the school, except it's to protect them against bombings. Exactly. When uh, the the school students are leaving home, then he, as a headmaster, has to stay, stand up at the gate and tell all school students to go on the other direction, not to walk, not to go through this direction because he has a police outpost and anything is possible uh, could happen to them. 
So why is it that these schools are targeted in particular for this kind of violence? You know, the Taliban has traditionally been hostile to what it sees as a Western education model, but they're also definitely, definitely hostile towards elections. Just earlier this year, they issued a statement warning all Afghans ahead of the presidential elections that are scheduled for next month to stay away from campaigns, to stay away from polling sites that they'd be putting themselves in harm's way um, just if they participate in any way. We actually uh, asked Zabila Mujahid, the spokesman for the Taliban ourselves, should we expect more schools to be attacked this year? Um, and he told us, you know, in a, his own kind of ominous way, if they're being used as polling sites, it won't be our fault if they're attacked. And are most of the polling sites in Afghanistan schools? Unfortunately, yes. I spoke to the election commission and they say they're going to have over 5,000 polling sites across Afghanistan for these elections. And 70 to 80 percent of them are going to be at schools. Why, why do they put most of the polling sites at schools if, if they're a particular target for violence? They say that they have no other choice. Um, I also spoke to the education minister who himself has called on President Ghani on the election commission to use zero schools as polling sites because of the threats. He says those calls have gone unanswered. So even if the children are not there during the election in the schools, but the infrastructure also will be damaged. Is the government bringing that war into the schools? That is the bitter reality that we have here in Afghanistan. That's the, the bitter reality? Unfortunately. This is a question I actually posed to the education minister, Mirwais Balhi. You know, I asked him, can any schools be used as polling sites? Is that safe? Not at all. I respond very simply. <laughs> but the election commission says there are a number of reasons to do it. They have a fixed address. They have a relatively, you know, quote unquote, secure infrastructure. And on the flip side, in the past, they've used mosques, they've used private residences. But, you know, in past Afghan elections have been really mired by allegations of corruption and mismanagement. And they say that's especially hard to rein in at these alternative sites. Um, so while they say that they're concerned about students' well-being, they say they have no other choice and they have to push forward with the election. And that's what they plan to do. And does the Afghan government have any plan in place to try to help protect these polling places at our schools or try to uh, minimize the violence there? I mean, there are calls for certain levels of security to be added around the schools. But as we saw at the Alinika school, sometimes the security itself can actually be more of a draw for insurgent violence. And that's just kind of like the really cynical logic of the war in Afghanistan. So given this really dramatic uptick in violence, especially over the last year, are people still sending their kids to school? Yeah, so that was one of the most amazing things about reporting this story, um, was the real kind of resiliency, the, the, the amount that students were just undeterred by all this. You know, I, I went to one school that had also been hit by two Taliban bombs actually on election night last year. Um, didn't manage to, didn't manage to damage any of the election materials, but blew the roof off. It's still hanging mangled today. Um, destroyed books and desks and everything else. So what is your name? 
You know, I met an 11 year old girl named Nazdana, still got a crooked front tooth growing into her smile, and she's kind of surrounded by all her friends. And she was so defiant to me, she kind of says, <laughs> She says, They're the Taliban. They, they don't like education. You know, she's kind of looked at me and she's like, They're just jealous. I kind of got some laughs from her classmates and the, the elders who were gathered around. But she also, she looked at me straight in the eye and she was like, I have no fear. I'm going to continue coming to school. I'm going to continue to see my friends and to see my teachers and to learn. You know, that's, again, that's the reality of, of living life in these kind of situations of, you know, going to school in a war zone. Despite the threats, you know, the, the will to push on with life and to learn is alive and well. Pam Constable is the Kabul and Islamabad bureau chief for The Post. John Gerberg is a video journalist. Sharif Hassan also contributed reporting and translations. One more thing, from Berlin-based reporters Luisa Beck and Rick Nowak. This is a love story between two penguins. They're called Skipper and Ping. And when my colleague Rick Nowak and I visited them at the Berlin Zoo last week, they seemed very much in love. Yeah, I mean, they basically stood side by side with their flippers touching the entire hour we were there. That's Rick. We wanted to see Skipper and Ping live because recently they've become quite famous. And if all goes well, the, the couple will soon be parents. Since July, they've been taking turns nestling an egg with their feet and covering it with their stomach flaps to keep it warm. Before they got an egg, they'd been doing the same thing with a stone and with a fish, which they also confused with an egg. Male penguins always play a role in watching over eggs. But what's different here is that it was a same-sex couple that expressed interest in parenting. So basically the zookeepers saw how badly they wanted to be parents. And, and then when they finally um, had a, a female penguin, they thought couldn't really care for the egg. They just gave it to Skipper and Pink. They are good parents. They are good parents, I think. That's one of the Berlin zookeepers, Nico Heidemann. Is they're like sticking together? Yes. They're standing every time together. The day we visited the Berlin Zoo, most of the reactions to the couple were positive, to say the least. Oh, yeah. they look beautiful together. <laughs> they do, right? <laughs> Romantic. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm gay. <laughs> There's connection between us. <laughs> 
That's Youssef Rashid. He's 23 years old and he's originally from Syria, but came to Germany four years ago. The empathy he and a lot of visitors who talked to that day feel for the couple, well, it's not universal. In fact, same-sex penguin couples have become an international symbol and a litmus test of sorts. We'll come back to that in a moment. First, you have to know about this book that was written in 2005 about a different gay penguin couple in New York City. My name is Justin Richardson. I'm a psychiatrist on the faculty at Columbia, and I'm co-author with Peter Parnell of Entangle Mix 3. Entangle Mix 3 is a book that tells the true story of Roy and Silo, two uh, male chinstrap penguins at the Central Park Zoo, who pair bonded and seemed desperately to want to become parents because they found a rock and brought it to their nest and tried to hatch it. Spoiler alert, the book ends well. The zookeeper gives them an egg another couple couldn't hatch. And they did a beautiful job hatching that egg and raising that chick, and her name was Tango. And what was the reaction that you have gotten to the book since then? Well, we anticipated some pushback. Uh, we never anticipated that we would be the number one most banned or challenged book in the, in the United States for many years running. The reception of the book has become a kind of barometer for where we are in terms of the acceptance of gay rights at any one particular place at any one particular time. But um, ultimately, the book has had so many champions and has been supported by the ACLU and Pan America and the American Library Association, and it's really um, prevailed in so many cases. In Berlin, the sight of two same-sex penguins brooding over an egg delighted most visitors. But here, everyone we spoke to made a connection to humans, too. And it just shows how it's natural, you know, like the people are born that way. Carol Simon is a 38-year-old nurse and lawyer from Kenya who was visiting the zoo with her kids that day. I, I, I know a lot of Africans that are actually gay, and they, they're in the closet because they think, you know, they'll be they'll be in trouble, you know, they'll be killed in, the, in, in Kenya or in other parts of, of the world. So it's a huge lesson to humanity, I think. Louisa Beck and Rick Nowak are reporters at the Post's Berlin Bureau. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And a special shout-out to all the folks who've recently left reviews of Post reports on Apple Podcasts, like Beach Chick, who said she finds our podcast heartwarming and heartbreaking and a wonderful daily experience. And yes, Beach Chick, we will tell Travis DeShong that he should definitely take up a side gig narrating audiobooks. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 